Monday, Monday afternoon, afternoon. Theologians. 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 Brother Rick, here we are. We're diving into some hot stuff today. I think it was no accident that I happened to be reading a book written by a friend of mine this week, and he talked about trauma of sort of a spiritual trauma, really, of childhood experiences where people were speaking about God's wrath more than they spoke about God's love. So he came out of that childhood experience with some real uh, neuroses and some fears and anxieties. It was spiritually quite traumatic and took him a lifetime to overcome that. Fortunately, he has, and he has arrived at the point where he realizes that you can choose joy based on what we know about God for real and not only about what was presented to us as a kid. In fact, the title of his book is Choosing Joy. His name is John Dempster, if you're interested in the book. The Scottish accent? Oh, yeah. Oh, ach, I, I, don't, <laughs> I can't do it well. I've been away from my visits to Scotland enough that I sound like an American doing a very poor Scottish accent. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, John Dempster from Scotland. And it made me think that we need to always make sure, and I think we do a pretty good job of it, keeping it balanced, that this two-sided coin of the gospel message, God's love and God's wrath exist together. And we're going to talk about that today. So I don't want you to be triggered by the fact that we're going to be talking about some things, including toward the end, some of the things promised to those who are not in Christ in the book of Revelation, because the Bible also makes it clear that it's God's love that draws us to himself. So I put that out there just at the very beginning to say, we want to make sure that we're always presenting God's love to you as the motive for everything he has done for us. So that's a good starting point, I think, with what we're looking at today. It's easy to not see that balance. There are entire denominations that really focus on one side or the other. Yeah. And as a result, there's a skewedness to the message. Yeah. And I don't think that's doing any favors to the listener if they're saying, oh, God is love and would never want anything but the very best to happen for you versus you step over the line just a little bit and you're going to end up in hell. And that's yeah. not what the Bible teaches us when we look at it in totality. No, you're so right. Because if we only focused on the wrath part of God, I wouldn't really want to have anything to do with a God like that either, frankly. No. Yeah. But that's not what we get in the Bible. And so I'm happy to report that the God we serve is a God who is replete with love. And there's abundant evidence that he has sacrificially poured out his love to us. And he did that, as we see, in Jesus, who took our own sins upon himself. So that's the greatest place where we can find love. And we see that especially in the book of John. But if we were to try to find that approach that says, oh, he won't really pour out wrath. He's just all about the love. Wouldn't that negate the truthfulness of God's word? Oh, absolutely. And we have to look at it in totality, and we have to look at it with all of the elements that go into purpose. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when sin came into the world, things changed dramatically. Yeah. And there's the element of justice that we have to look at as well. And we won't really talk about that too much today. But would God be a just God if he just 
forgot about all of the sin, and I don't think that would be the case. I don't either, and we're going to have one brief little story illustration later on in this episode that will help us kind of get a grasp about that concept, that we really need justice, and love and justice are perfectly integrated, perfectly balanced in God's perfect character. Let me set the stage here for what we're looking at, because there is a monumentally flawed reasoning that we see, and it's popping up in lots of places today. It's right in the headlines, and it's right with some Christian leaders who have sort of defected from their evangelical roots to go into this kind of universalistic, utopian view of God. So here's a monumentally flawed reasoning, and it involves serious redacting. You know what to redact something is like? You've seen these crime dramas on TV, and they'll say, well, yes, they provided their materials, but they're seriously redacted, and they give some sort of a document, and they've got all these big black thick lines that cover up a whole bunch of the uh, text. That's what you would have to do to the Bible. You would have to cross out a lot of the Bible, seriously redact it to come up with this line of reasoning. And it's a textbook example of proof texting, and it's a real poor academic synthesis of Scripture. It's just, a, it's just an example of what not to do if you're looking for truth. So here's the proof text that some people use in trying to come up with this flawed reasoning that God would not pour out his wrath. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and in the NIV version it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of the flagship text, and they'll grab just that one verse redact a whole lot of other verses, including some other verses around it, and including two words within that verse itself <laughs> in order to come up with their flawed reasoning. So what's another text, Rick, that people use? It's sort of the secondary text in coming up with their flawed reasoning. The second one is, of course, the passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, which really expands on the concept of God being love. And we see that in a number of places. The Bible certainly says God is love. You know, he's the perfect expression of love. And in the love chapter, it talks about some of those characteristics that really define what love is in the truest sense. And some of those concepts, it says, you know, love is patient. Love does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor. It's not self-seeking. Love is slow to anger. It doesn't keep track of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. If we've got God would not make us suffer in his wrath because he is love, you know, we get to the point that we think, well, maybe, maybe he wouldn't do those terrible things to his children, pouring out his wrath and punishing evil doers for all eternity mm -hmm. and turning us back on those who have rejected him or casting these godless people out of his presence. And then we have to start to think, is that really what the Bible tells us? Mm -hmm. It does tell us that he does not want his children to suffer wrath because he is love. And yet, there's much more to this story. There are some reasons, three main reasons, I think. There may be some subcategories here, but there are three main reasons why I think somebody would want to come to that conclusion. One could be they would arrive at that conclusion that God's not going to pour out wrath because of just ignorance. People might not know what the Bible actually says, and they're only listening 
to the redacted version of the Bible that people are presenting to them through a YouTube video or a book. Or a second reason why somebody might come to that conclusion would be disbelief. Somebody who doesn't believe that what the Bible says is true, so that they don't think it's a trustworthy source. And that would mean, if you carry that to its conclusion, that the Bible actually contains untruth, which is a lie. And you and I both know that's not true. And we're constantly pointing out things that will affirm that the Bible is a trustworthy source. Third reason why somebody could come to that conclusion that God will not pour out wrath is just frankly denial. They would simply deny what they know deep down must be true. Namely, if God does love us, then he would actually have to pour out wrath on those who don't love him and don't love the things that he loves, because that's where justice comes into play. So there's ignorance, disbelief, or denial, and all three are really rampant today, and we see a whole bunch of it because there's a lot of people who would like to kind of lean in that category that, oh, God's not going to pour out wrath. I think if we go back to those verses and we start to unpack those a little bit, uh, we find that there's at least one really specific word in the beginning of that 1 Thessalonians 5 verse that is really important, and they'd like to redact that one. You know, it really makes a difference on how somebody can make a quantum leap into the flawed and dangerous conclusion. And the word is us. The first part of that verse goes, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Mm -hmm. So then we have to ask, who is the us? Obviously, there's an us and a them. Mm -hmm. So there's one group that is not going to suffer the wrath and another one that perhaps is going to suffer the wrath, and we have to figure out to whom Paul is writing. Mm -hmm. and we know from this passage that he's writing to believers in Christ, those who as an alternative to God's wrath will receive, the second part of the verse, receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a second word here that we have to take seriously in this flagship proof text, and that's the word salvation. Ah, that's true, because I can already see where you're headed with that. Salvation from what? Yeah, it's salvation from God's wrath. See, as we listen to this verse, God's wrath is not for his children, but for those who choose not to be God's children. Okay, that's vital. I will insert a parenthetical statement just before I head into that analogy, and that is somebody who would take that one little passage out of context and say, oh, God has chosen not to pour out his wrath on us, they're painting all of humanity with that broad brushstroke, which means that they have to ignore a lot of immediate context by not even reading a few verses around that verse in 1 Thessalonians to know that the us doesn't mean humanity. It means believers. So that's why we are constantly using context, context, context. It's vital for us to come to the right conclusion. So yes, here's one of two modern analogies. It's a simple one, but it helps us, I think, start to get a grasp on why it's so necessary for wrath to exist at the same time that love exists. Let's say that you have a daughter. Your daughter starts exhibiting really risky behavior. 
And so you start to fear. I did that exact, you know, some very risky behavior, some of which I think is going to show up in your analogy here. Oh I, boy. I relate to this story so well. Oh, man. And I didn't do that on purpose because I didn't know that. But uh, yeah, it, I think this will hit home with a lot of folks, quite frankly. Uh, so you start to fear that your daughter's friends are steering her in a direction that could cause long-term harm. So you start to try to reinforce some boundaries that you have established for the sake of developing self-discipline. And hopefully your daughter will develop some best practices for a healthy, balanced life. But she doesn't like that. <laughs> she doesn't like your boundaries. So she steps outside of one of those boundaries and sneaks out at night after the time that you had established for her supposed to stay in. I know they hate the word curfew. It just sounds so harsh. And yet you were trying to establish some boundaries that would keep her safe. So you're following through on an agreed upon consequence after she snuck out, she comes back fortunately that time. And so you say, okay, but we agreed on these consequences. And so you're grounded for two weeks. You can't go to anywhere other than school or work there's not going to be any going out this coming weekend on Friday night or on Saturday, no outside activities. And of course she's upset and she's telling all of her friends and social media on her phone in the room that she's upset and that you terrible person are just ruining her life. But you realize that you're angry. And so you have to try to analyze that. And you say, am I angry really at my daughter or am I aiming my anger at the right object? because you know that you love your daughter and that's why you're angry because you're angry at the behavior that could take your daughter from you or could cause serious harm to the object of your love. And that's why parenthetical statement, it's hard for us as human beings to separate those two things. And so it's very easy for us to lash out in anger and in wrath. And we may not explain ourselves well enough for them to know our kids to know that, it's love that's motivating our anger. And what we're angry at is the very thing that could take them away from us. So anyway, back to the story. So you tell your daughter that because you love her, you are following through on the consequences of her disobedience. And because you want to keep her alive, healthy, and on the path to a productive, fulfilled life, she complains like crazy on the first Friday night of her being grounded, but she is grounded. But Saturday afternoon, she comes walking in from her room and she's looking shaken and pale. And then she starts to cry. And you're saying, what's going on? She said, I just got a text from one of my friends. Some of the guys that I would have been hanging out with were in a terrible accident. They had gone to a nearby town. They had been after hours. They went drinking. And on their way back, it got foggy. They couldn't see well. And the guy who was driving, who was driving drunk, ran into a moving train and two of the three kids in that car got killed. Now, the reason I used that as one of the examples, this is a composite story. Several years ago in the previous church that I served before I came to the one I'm serving now, we actually went to the funeral of a couple of kids because this very thing happened. And uh, it's very difficult to console a parent when they're at the funeral of a very young person who's done that sort of thing. So in time, your daughter finally realizes that you were actually trying to demonstrate love to her by being angry at the risky behavior that she was engaged in because it could have been her. That could have taken her life. So several years later, it took a while, she later thanks you for saving her life 
by pouring out your wrath and by disciplining her at the appropriate time with appropriate consequences when she had stepped outside of your boundaries. Before we get to the second analogy, I'm going to make a shameless plug right here. Mm -hmm. And one of the skits that I've written, which are available on our website, we'll leave the link below, is a, a skit that's entitled To Whom Much Is Given. And the premise of the skit is a guy dies and goes to see the gatekeeper. And in the process of his being determined whether he's getting in or not, mm -hmm. there's a young lady there who was killed in an accident. And the premise of her part of the story is to see what happens because of her death. Mm. It's one of those, this is how God works things to his benefit works all things for good, including the salvation of a whole bunch of people because of this accident, which is a tragic event. And just reading it yesterday, which I haven't done in quite a while, I was tearing up because it is a very powerful message. And it's one that you can use in your church to make an impact on the congregation and whoever might be there. And there's, there's other people in the story that have different sides to these coins. So there's various ways that people can be moved through this skit. I encourage you to download it and use it in your church. It's called To Who Much Is Given. It's in the second set of skits that's there. But while you're there, you might as well just download them all because you never know which one is going to be appropriate for your congregation at any given time. And they're all there available for you at no charge. And we'll be happy for you to use it. After that shameless plug, let's move into our second analogy. Yeah, here's another just brief paragraph to show you what we're trying to wrap our heads around, including a God who loves us so much that there has to be justice, and a God who establishes boundaries for our good, again, because of his love for us. So let's say that there's a judge who listens to testimony about someone who has broken a whole bunch of laws, and who, because of that law-breaking behavior, has harmed countless people. And at this criminal sentencing, the judge says, you know, I'm feeling really merciful today, so I'm not going to impose any punishment as my sentence on this perpetrator. I'm just simply going to release this person back into the population because I'm a loving judge. Does that sound fair? That sounds like something that's happening all over the country right now. <laughs> We're starting to see what happens when people are not living according to God's plan which includes justice, which should be based on his character. And there should be appropriate punishment that fits the crime. And we're not seeing a whole lot of that. And I think it's good for us to recognize that if we truly want justice, there has to be wrath and there has to be punishment, especially if you realize that God has to prepare a place for those who have continued to reject him and are continuing to harm others. Because when that happens, if he said, I'm going to let everybody into heaven, even those who hate me, What's heaven going to be like? It would not be a nice place. Not a nice place at all. So what would happen if a parent said, because I love you, I've decided not to impose any rules on your life, dear child of mine, because I just trust you to make all the right decisions, even though a child hasn't lived long enough to develop those decisions. And I've decided it would not be loving for me to punish you. So you can expect only positive reinforcement from me from now on. What do you think that child is going to grow up to be like, I wonder? Well, like a lot of people we see as adults today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
who are not really very nice people. Right. Let's let's look at a couple of other words that have to come into this conversation. Okay. And they both help express aspects of God's perfectly balanced and integrated character. And the first one is mercy. And mercy means that we don't get what we deserve, mm-hmm. which would be punishment for our law-breaking or our rule-breaking in his eyes. And yeah. I think you have a story that you may have shared before. Uh, why don't you walk through that again real quickly, and uh, we can see how mercy is demonstrated through a parent. I will. I'll share that. I'll do the one-minute version this time. I wanted to get in good with a flute player in band. She was a freshman. I was a little bit older than she was. I had my driver's license. She wanted to know how to drive my truck. It wasn't my truck. It was my dad's truck. I tried to teach her. She ran into a chain link fence on the school property, (laughs) scratched the side of the truck up on the hood. So I drove it back home. It was an older truck, but still I drove it home, parked it so that hopefully my dad wouldn't see it right away. But of course he was gonna. So then I tell my dad, dad, you're going to laugh when I tell you what happened. (laughs) But he showed me mercy because I really deserved a whole lot worse than I got. What he did was he said, you know, I did something similar to this when I was a kid. And so what I'm going to do now is to give you a little mercy. And I'm going to suggest that you go to the hardware store, pick up a can of white paint. And this is an old truck. You're going to sand that spot down and you're just going to paint over that section, try to feather it in as best we can. And you'll learn from this experience, hopefully something that you won't repeat later on. And we'll just chalk this one up to a learning experience. So that was merciful. And when we look at mercy, we have to really look at the concept of sin all the way back. And what we really deserve is the very worst punishment because of our sin. And it's only the shed blood of Jesus that allows us to avoid the destruction we have earned because of our disobedience. God is merciful. He paid the debt for us and was willing to pour out his mercy on us. And all we have to do is trust him and then follow his guidance. Mercy is a very important word in how we understand God's character. But the other side of that is the other word we'll look at, and that is grace. And grace is getting something that we don't deserve, not not getting what we do deserve, but getting something that we don't deserve. And in most cases, we look at that as blessings. Jesus took our place on the cross, and God now sees us clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, we who have trusted Jesus as our Savior are joint heirs with him, and therefore we are able to be recipients of every good thing that is in his kingdom. That's a lot of grace. (laughs) That's a lot of grace. There is a guy that you let me know about. I didn't know about him until you sent me an email that had this link. But I looked up uh, an article. We're going to put the link to this article in this episode description as well. It's a pastor and writer named Bobby Cabance. And he lays out some apocalyptic events spoken about in the book of Revelation to give us a little clarity about what those things mean. And there are some really odd-sounding terms in that last book of the Bible, Revelation. They help us catch a glimpse why it's so vital for us to accept God's grace, and therefore we get to enjoy both His grace and His mercy. And it shows us why it's going to be horrible, horrible for those who reject God's freely offered salvation. So the first thing we want to look at is a passage that says, 
all the worshipers of the beast, that is the Antichrist, who will be a world system leader, the Antichrist is against everything God and mm. everything God stands for. All the worshipers of the beast are the object of these judgments. So who are the worshipers of the beast? They are those who reject God by rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. Those who choose instead to put their trust in the world leaders who exalt themselves instead of exalting Christ. And what are the passages that we're looking at here? Look at uh, Revelation 8, 6 to 13, and Revelation 9, 1 through 20. And I've shrunk them down because to read them all would take us a significant amount of time. But I urge the listeners to be able to look those passages up and read for yourself all these things about the trumpets and the bowls, because they both represent the same thing in this apocalyptic analogous literature. It's very image-oriented, and there's some good reason for that. One of the reasons is that John was in exile on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote it, and he could get this past the censors by sending it out in this poetic, apocalyptic, picture-oriented kind of literature. But these things represent, the bowls and trumpets, represent the fact that God is going to pour out his wrath upon the earth. And we've seen foreshadowings of this kind of punishment, including the way Jerusalem was sacked. It was completely destroyed in 70 AD, as Jesus predicted, and in several awful events in the Old Testament. You read through the book of Daniel, for example, and you can see how Babylon, other things were happening back then. When God's prophets would warn Israel what was coming because they had turned away from God, it would help draw them back momentarily, but Israel had that pattern of drawing themselves back, starting to serve God again, and then they would wander away again. So all those were foreshadowings looking ahead to this apocalyptic time when eventually, finally, all these things are going to come to a head in the entire globe, not just regionally, not just with the children of Israel, but for everybody. And in these awful things that happen when the wrath of God is poured out, we see plagues similar to the ones God used to get Pharaoh's attention, way back when Moses was preparing to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. And people are going to encounter physical illnesses, sores all over their bodies, for example. Sounds a little bit like monkeypox, but I don't know that that's a specific thing for today. It just maybe that's a foreshadowing in, it, in itself. But there are all these things that are starting to come at us in Revelation, showing what's going to happen as God starts to pour out his wrath, because there's such godlessness uh, waters in the seas will turn to blood. That sounds like one that happened back in Exodus. All the sea creatures dying. In other places, we see water drying up, like we're seeing even today in Lake Mead, for example. There are other plagues that just get visited all across the planet. And these are the kinds of things that happen when people continually ignore God's warning to repent and turn to Him. So, this is a warning, and it's a clear warning, but that warning is born out of God's love because he wants us to repent and turn to him so that we can avoid all these horrible things that are going on. And when you read through and get the vision from the picture stories, it is just awful. And the conclusion that the writer comes to, he says, I am emphasizing here the importance of repentance, because if people will not repent now, they will not repent, even if they suffer God's wrath. Mm. And you look through some of those second set of judgments that come, and it says right there, they would rather be pelted with 100-pound hailstones than turn from their evil ways. Mm -hmm. The repentance is so important, and it's so simple, and it's so easy. 
we have every time we have walked through these sessions or almost every time we provide an opportunity to make a decision because now is the time today is the day of salvation because we don't know when our chances will be used up you know after our bodies die we don't get another chance and you're so right now is the time today is the day of salvation as the good old preachers would say you would say that. And I can see why they would say that, because we don't want people to have a false hope that they can just hang on, and at the very last minute, they'll make some sort of a decision. Now is the time to do that, because we really want to avoid that awful stuff when it does happen. We also saw, I couldn't help but think, as I was going through this material, I couldn't help think of an Old Testament example of a time when God poured out his wrath over the entire earth, and I think it was in itself a huge foreshadowing to this apocalyptic event that would be coming at some point. That was that time when Noah had built the ark and God gave him instructions. He built it, took him a long time to do it. The floods finally came as God had promised. There are a lot of people that were listening to Noah talk about why he was doing that. That in itself was the message and they failed to heed the warnings. And so they knew that this flood was coming. Noah had made it abundantly clear why he was building that ark. But once God shut that huge door on the ark, that was it. They were left to drown. There was no second chance. And I think that story becomes for us a huge example of why it's important that people accept now this wonderful grace and mercy that God offers so freely, rather than scoffing at him and claiming that there is no such thing as a God, that he's a myth or that he's just something that we've made up to try to placate ourselves or whatever. We need to take him seriously because there's abundant evidence, not only in scripture, but also in creation itself. And we need to heed that still small voice and take a step in the right direction before all these awful things happen that are predicted in the book of Revelation. Yeah, when we read through that story of Noah, we see again, a lot of people just ignored him. Yeah, A lot of people didn't believe him. And some of them just denied it and said, no, nah, it's, it's not going to happen at all. And they were left to drown. And that's not where we want to see anybody be. Because right. when Noah and his family were a remnant that repopulated the earth, mm -hmm. when this next one comes, that's it. That's the end. No kidding. And I don't know for sure whether it's going to be pre-trib or mid-trib. I suspect mid-trib based on the things I've read. But I have a feeling that maybe God wanted us to know a little bit less about the specifics in terms of when, because he knew that if we knew exactly when that was going to happen, we might slack off. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's just enough of that left open, open-ended, but at some point, some terrible things are going to happen on the earth. Now, if it's pre-trib, I'm going to be rejoicing and happy and singing, thank you for taking me out away from this mess. It's so good to be in your presence, God, and I don't have to fool with that nonsense down there. But if it's mid-trib, then the first three and a half years will be kind of like these pings of childbirth, and we'll see all these things taking place, giving us believers time to continue to make it clear. These things are coming upon us, folks. We need to make a decision. You need to repent and turn to God and start serving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because then your eternity will be secured. Because if it is mid-trib, then believers will be taken out before the most awful things that are presented to us in scripture will be taking place. I don't know where you stand completely on that issue in terms of uh, mid-trib or pre-trib, 
but uh, I'm not sure in my own personal heart if that's the important, most important thing that he's trying to get across to us. I think he's trying to get across today's the day of salvation. We need to do something now while we have a chance, because regardless of when it happens, we need to be ready when he returns. Yeah, well, I've heard good arguments on both sides of that coin, whether it's pre or mid. I don't know that, in fact, that it matters to us. Uh, it's God's timing. He's going to do it when he wants to do it. And if that means there's seven years after that or three and a half years after that, I just want to be ready when that happens so that I don't feel that wrath. I don't see that wrath poured out on the earth. And we've talked a lot about that today, but we need to provide a little bit of balance. And that is the loving side of God who did send his son to take the penalty for our sin. He shed his blood, he died on the cross, he was resurrected, and that is what provides the opportunity for us to step into his presence, to repent and become clothed in Christ's righteousness. Mm -hmm. He came that we might have and life more abundant, and that starts today if we make that decision. And I think that would be a good thing for folks to do if they haven't already. And why don't we walk through real quickly how that takes place and give our fellow theologians the opportunity to step into God's presence, to become a child of God, perhaps the very first time that they've made a decision like this. And today will become a monumental day in their life, a day that will change their eternity. I appreciate that. And I'm thinking of my good friend, John Dempster, and from his book that I've been reading. And I'm thinking that what he perceived as something that was a horrible thing being dangled in front of him to say, you need to avoid this. It was really fear-based. I think that was what continued to develop some, uh, some awful reactions of anxiety uh, because of early childhood spiritual experiences. So I would say that, yes, we need to balance this out by saying, God wants us to avoid all this stuff. That's not his primary purpose. And the primary purpose of our teaching and preaching truth is not just so that you can avoid the fire. We're not just preaching fire insurance. We're preaching the love of God who loved us so much that he would give his one and only son to die in our place on a cross so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Because greater love hath no man than to give up his life for his friends. How do we know what love is? It's that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those are the things that continue to propel us into love as the motive. And if we're continuing to do that, then what we're really saying is, we want you to know the love of God that we've experienced. And when you start to see that, when you look into the New Testament and you start to be embraced by a God who loves you that much, that fear goes away. We're not doing something just to punch our ticket. We're really wanting to draw close to the one who loves us so much that he would give himself in our place so we can have a place in his presence for eternity. And if you want to do that, you could say a prayer, something like this, quite simply. God, I really do desire to know your love. And I don't want to just punch my ticket to avoid going to hell. I want to go to heaven because I, I realize now that it's your love that is drawing me to yourself, as you have said in scripture. And so I pray that you would accept me, not because I'm a good person, because I know I'm not. I know I'm a sinner at the core of my life, but you would accept me simply because of what Jesus did for me. And because of that, I thank you for your mercy, which is poured out so richly. Uh, I'm not getting what I do deserve, but I also thank you for your grace, because you're willing to give me 
everything that I don't deserve, and yet you're going to give it to me freely anyway, including becoming a joint heir with Jesus Christ. So all these things are mine if I'll simply surrender into your will and start walking with you and getting to know you better. And I ask for that. I pray that you would help me to get to know you better every day as I walk with you in this journey and as I look into your word, which is where I'm getting to know you better. Continue to transform me from the inside out through your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And if you did that, tell somebody. You can tell us in the comments or through the email link on our website, where I bet there is somebody that you know about in your sphere of influence who would love to hear that you just made that decision. Yes. And it's always a wonderful thing when they hear that. Uh, I know that I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, you know what happened to me just two weeks ago? Then what's that? I accepted Christ and I got baptized as a public profession. And like, ah, that's the thing that makes my heart smile when somebody would tell me something like that. I love yeah, absolutely. that. I mean, I remember when uh, I was first confronted with the gospel and then found out that there was a whole slew of people who had been praying specifically for me to come to that point and make that decision. Yeah. And yeah. they were ecstatic. Yeah. And I would say to those who might have had some childhood experiences, similar to some that I've had, I didn't have it to the same degree that my friend John Dempster had, but he was really traumatized by people who were constantly pointing to avoid hell, avoid hell, avoid hell. It was more performance-based rather than grace-based. And I would say to you, please open your heart to a gracious God and understand that it's his grace that he wants to pour out to you. He's not just simply wanting you to punch a ticket. God is so much more loving than you may have seen if you had grown up with that style of preaching. And I just would love for you to be able to find that love and acceptance that God has for you. And you can find it by reading through that New Testament, by hanging out with fellow believers who have found that love of God. And then we recognize, oh, he just loves us so abundantly that way. And he's got that same kind of love available for you as well. So what do you think of the chances that we're going to be back here next week to do another episode on false teachings that we're finding in the headlines today? I give it about a 98% chance. And I only say that I leave the 2% because we had some power outages yesterday from a storm that blew through. So if there are no storms next week, chances are really good that we're going to join you folks. You find friends of ours again. Uh, we're going to put some good resources available in the description to this podcast. And you can find us on our website and including some of those skits and stuff. Find us there. That is www.mondayafternoontheologians.podia.com. And join us again, fellow theologians, next time for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.